You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. It's a beautiful January morning. We are talking settlements today. We are talking to my favorite settlement agent. Of course, she's my favorite settlement agent. She works at Strategic Settlements. Uh, Brooke Walker, thank you very much for coming in. Hi, Trent. Thanks for having me. Brooke, so many people would have zero clue about what a settlement agent does, that it's even a job. Uh, They may understand them as conveyances as well. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown from just a very basic level, the start of a process, why we need a settlement agent, why we pay them, and what service they actually provide to people. So a settlement agent is somebody that you employ when you are buying or selling a property. Um, You do need somebody to create the documents involved in affecting the transaction. So the initial part of it is just an agreement. This actually facilitates the ownership transfer. They also need to be looking out for your best interests. So that's what we do. Protecting you with regards to the clauses on a contract and offer an acceptance. Correct. But also that conduit between the buyer and the seller and Landgate, who is the ultimate arbiter of these transactions, right? That's correct, yes. So when you're doing this, I think the old school way of settlements that recently, only recently changed a couple of years ago was a settlement agent would represent the buyer or the seller and then they would get all the documents ready, sign all the documents between after essentially the bank or the mortgage broker has seen it, work with them all the way to settlement and then on the day, you would literally meet together at the office in Land- at Landgate in the city and sign papers, transfer papers, transfer checks, right? Yeah, that's right. That's the archaic way that we were conducting settlements. It still happens quite a bit though, right? It does today still. There is a few settlements that we still have to attend in town and basically transfer paperwork for checks. Although, Show cans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes. <Jobs> yeah. <laughs> but we are more and more every week conducting settlements in PEXA, which is the electronic platform. So much quicker, so much more efficient. And I guess security would help some ways too. Yeah, that's right. So a seller will now have their funds cleared the day of settlement rather than the usual three business days waiting for a bank check to clear and a purchaser will have title the same day. And that used to take a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, if you are settling a paper settlement at the moment, it will take up to four weeks at times. So what quickly, this is probably a digression, what types of settlements have to still go through the old school style? Uh, anything that is not currently in PEXA as a eligible transaction. Those are things like court order transfers. Like divorces. Yeah, divorce settlements, basically because they cannot be self-assessed with state revenue. Anything that cannot be self-assessed in state revenue cannot be done on PEXA. That includes transactions like court orders, half share transfers. We also have anything to do with an executor on the title cannot be done in PEXA. Application for new titles and really any other application that is... So the non-vanilla buyer-seller stuff, Correct. that's still physical. Hopefully that's going to pick up over time. Hopefully. But what we're seeing really is if you're a normal buyer or seller buying a house to someone who's just normally selling a house, this goes through a settlement agent, one for the buyer, one for the seller and some occasions that settlement agent may be for both coincidentally and that lawyer style job of transferring land is done with you guys and a lawyer can also do this job right that's right yes there it is a part of what a solicitor can do although unless they're specialized there's parts of the transaction that i would say it's best to go through someone that does this specifically day in and day out 
I guess they're a bit more expensive. I would say so. Some of the time, most of the time. I don't compare their fees, but yeah. I know that we are very competitive. So I don't imagine that they look at their time as being worth the same as a settlement agent who hasn't gone to receive a law degree or... Yeah, understandable. So with regards to really why we need a settlement agent, I still remember some people, aunties and uncles back in the day, they try and do their own settlement. Does that yeah. still happen? Is that still possible? And what are the fraught dangers when doing that? I guess it is possible. It's really not recommended. It's not recommended by Landgate or by any government agencies. It's fraught with danger for somebody who doesn't know what different information to check on that property. Like what? Like title information, ownership? Something like that or something very basic like rates arrears. If you haven't gone through the correct process on finding out if there is any outstanding rates on that property, you're going to be the person responsible for that when the transaction is complete. Also, if you're a seller as well, which it's not the same risk, but if you miss something and your settlement is delayed, you could be liable for penalty interest for delayed settlement. So there are quite a few different facets to consider these days with the frauds going on. There's all different... Verification of of identity. Yeah, that's right. I guess the real value comes out when things go wrong, right? And sitting at the desk watching you guys work every day with the volume that comes through in settlements... There's always a couple of files that are just problem files. Either there's been a building inspection and things aren't as they seem or the buyer's not happy. They want things fixed or the bank isn't ready or the buyer hasn't got their finance approved or hasn't got funds to complete on time. All of these things are things that settlement agents are employed and experienced to mitigate those risks from the earliest point in time, right? Yeah, definitely to mitigate risk, but also to manage expectations. So I often have clients ask me about particular conditions that they have had written into a contract and the condition may not actually give them what they expected. Like it wasn't written watertight? No. And there's a lot of that where we suggest people provide us with the contract to have a look and review that for them before they sign it. A perfect example that I see a lot as a buyer's agent is the building inspection and termite inspection clause, right? Sometimes you'll see these clauses that are not that non-standard, they've just been written by the buyer with the best intentions and even by the real estate agent with the best intentions and it will say something like the purchase is subject to a building inspection and termite inspection within seven days. That's fine. All that means is that the buyer can do a building inspection and pest inspection in seven days but there's no recourse, right? What if they find something wrong? There's nothing there, right? And I guess you say that a lot. Yes. Also, when they do get that building inspection report done, the way the condition reads usually, like the REWA standard condition, is they can have the report written And they can take their findings to the seller. If it comes under certain categories, they can ask the seller to repair or compensate them. Like structural damage? Yep. But there is no obligation on the seller to agree to do that. So if they want to... And that's the REWA standard. That's right. So if they want to go through with that condition to their benefit, it's only to terminate the contract. So if they want to keep that contract, there's really nothing for them to do there. To enforce someone, you know, the seller to actually fix these things. Yeah. Now, and that's that recourse. And, and not only there needs to be recourse, there needs to be timeliness of that recourse. How quickly does that need to be done? Or you know, what uh, level of recuperation financially could the buyer get? I guess that would line up with really a push to the quicker you can engage and identify your settlement agent, a good one. Even before you put an offer in, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? To have them on board. And I'm right. sure that settlement agents, you're all generally very happy to help out with reviewing clauses before you sign on the dotted line. That's right. And the costs are the same for a buyer and a seller, no matter what stage of the process they appoint us. So appointing us prior to signing the contract, we don't charge extra to review that contract. 
as soon as they've signed it, we most definitely want to be appointed. If they have a condition that says they must get a building inspection report within five days from acceptance and they appoint us in 10 days and they haven't had that inspection done, they most likely have waived their benefit of having that report created at all. And there's not much you can do to help in that situation. Absolutely. So I'd much rather they appointed us prior so we can help them with that situation rather than trying to mop up the mess. Yep, funds to complete as well. Yeah, the funds to complete is definitely something that can come up at the 11th hour if you're not on top of things. So for a buyer who doesn't know how to arrange that, it's important to give them a heads up prior to the week before settlement. This is how we're going to be needing you to act. Not the day before or the day day off. Because the money might be sitting in their CBA account, but they're getting a loan with NAB and CBA is not going to transfer that $100,000 that day. That's right. Therefore, what happens? Settlement is delayed, right? Yes. You're there to mitigate that. Yeah. And I mean, there's only so much you can do. As you mentioned before, it's more important to have the right people for when things don't go right. I've had many situations where my most grateful clients have been the ones that have had the most awful settlements. And that's that's a big shame for them. But I'm really happy that I was there to help them, even just to communicate with them, let them know where they stand, give them advice. Protect uh, them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the price of that protection or the price of that advice and, and being there, making sure that process is running as smoothly as it possibly could have. The price for a settlement agent, the, the fees for settlement agents, they've deregulated over the years, haven't they? Correct. So that we were charging on a sliding scale. As an industry. As an industry, probably close to triple what we're charging now. So it's definitely a lot cheaper, although the qualifications for being a settlement agent are no less. So you're getting the same exact skilled, educated person. Licensed. Licensed. Well, I'm licensed. Yep. So uh, exactly the same cost for me to remain licensed, although our fees are now a lot. How does that work? Is like, I guess bringing PECSA in helps it a lot in terms of operating on a volume level in a lot of ways now. There's definitely more room to complete more settlements in a day because of PECSA, although that role was usually by a less skilled person because they were running around town yeah, with instructions. Yep. Now, PECSA is a lot more, uh, that platform is very important and cannot be run by the same people. So in the same way that it's creating less work, it's also more important work. Yeah. Uh, so the volume is up. And the expectation is up, the risk is up, uh, but the client experience has tended to be the same. Well, let's talk about what those fees are now these days. And and obviously our fees at Strategic, they're what they are and it will be different to other businesses out there. But as a rough guide, it's interesting how the industry charges a different price for a buyer to a seller. What are they and why is that? So a seller settlement agent, we charge four sixty nine as a flat rate, including GST plus disbursements and government charges. You know, stamp duty and government charges, they're on top. They're just government charges, right? There's nothing we can do about those as a settlement agent. They're the additional costs. That's right. So for a seller, they're quite minimal. And on a seller settlement, I guess people consider them to be less risk. You're looking out for someone who is releasing a property. When they're obtaining a property, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of due diligence for them to be doing and their representative to be doing for them. Checks. Yep. Yep. So there's um there's a higher fee for a buyer settlement. We charge seven sixty nine including GST plus disbursements and government costs. A lot more government costs when you're purchasing. Obviously stamp duty, registration costs. They are all included on our quotes. So when you think about how important a settlement agent's job is on the, that risk mitigation. A few hundred dollars on what most people's purchase prices would be half a million, a million, two million dollars, right? Quite interesting how that quite an insignificant cost in the overall is quite important in terms of the service in making sure this is done properly mm-hmm. after and whilst the bank's done their job. And if you consider the potential 
extra costs or penalties or risks where you haven't appointed somebody in time. Let's just say your building inspection condition does go over. You don't get the report in time and there's a couple of thousand dollars worth of work that you can't now have the seller repair for you. That cost is immediately worth its value if you're having someone remind you to have that report done. It's interesting. A settlement agent, they're at the coalface of transactions in WA. They have an ability to see before really anyone else on a broad scale, how the market is moving, in, especially in terms of transactions. What you see as a settlement agent upfront when the business is very much based on that volume, uh, volumes from the market going up and down in different cycles, right? You know, we obviously talk about the spring season. We notice that transactions are higher now than they were a year ago. How has that been sitting as just general commentary from yourself as a professional in the property industry? In general, we absolutely notice that Spring is a busier time of year for us. It's definitely the busiest time of the year consistently. At the moment, we're noticing that the increase in sales is in line with what Rewa have also documented being roughly 30% growth, which has been really great for us. Yeah, I mean, things have been a lot busier this year than they were last year in the settlements team. And that's just been a function really of transactions increasing from 2018, right? Correct, yeah. And when you're around in the boom, you don't want the boom again. (laughs) A nice steady increase is really what we look for. We went through a time where there was a lot of unskilled workers and as the property market fell, a lot of people were finding redundancies and whatnot. So at the moment, it's really great to see some growth in the settlement industry. You should have the best agents working in the industry right now, right? The ones that are still here are the ones that are here for a reason. That's right. Brooke, first one, intro to settlement agents. I think you've uh, done a good job. Now, it's your first time on a mic, so thank you very much for coming in, taking 15, 20 minutes of your time out in the morning before we hit another week of settlements. That's fine. Thanks for having me. I hope there's some cake in the fridge. You earned it. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> okay, Suburb Spotlight. We are talking about the city of Belmont suburb today. It is Kudal. Not the biggest suburb, not the smallest suburb, but certainly a bit going on in terms of volume. Uh, and a bit of history too. It's it's one of Perth's older suburbs. It's got a uh, good workers' class background, but is slowly gentrifying uh, into the realms of middle class suburbs in Perth today. We have one agent to talk about that suburb too. He's been on a few times now. He's absolutely killing the pig in the city of Belmont at the moment. Why? It's brand loyalty, brand recognition, and the guy works bloody hard. It's Devin Kelly. Thank you very much for coming in again, mate. Yeah, thanks, Trent. Uh, good to be here. Let's talk, as always, about a bit of history. Let's go back to what Qdale meant to people before I was born, before when you were a young tacker. What was Qdale all about and, and how has that evolved? Qdale um, was basically a working class area with most of the workers over in the Qdale industrial area. He had the freight terminals, generally just blue-collar people bringing up families close to Tomato Lake. Tomato Lake, my grandma's favourite park to have a picnic. We haven't been there in a while, but I reckon we need to pop down there again. Tell us about that little precinct there. It's a beautiful spot that most people wouldn't really know about if they haven't lived in the area. Yeah, well, originally it was not, not a lot of people know this, but it was actually called Craig's Lake. And then it was renamed Tomato Lake. Uh, we lived about 100 metres from the water. Dad picked a site there in a cul-de-sac in Harrow Place. And uh, we grew up there up until about 15 years of age. It was a great spot. A lot of people will focus on the lake when they're purchasing, uh, whether it's views or just you know walking proximity. A lot of families having picnics, dogs playing, kids playing in the equipment. It's flat out most weekends, uh, even during the during the week. Uh, there's a little cafe down there, beautifully uh, maintained by the council, and just a great place to be. 
Why is it called tomato lake? They used to be some wild tomatoes that used to grow out there okay. back in the day. That's what I've been told. Okay. But I haven't have, found them. But you'll have to, you'll have <laughs> I'm, to I'm fact no check that somewhere on Google. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Uh, in terms of that lifestyle in Kudal, let's talk about accessibility to shops and schools. If we're living in Kudal, are we si- simply heading into Belmont Forum or do we have a closer amenity? No, Belmont Forum is the target. Okay. Very close, within five minutes from any direction in Kudal. Okay. Schools? Kudal Primary, Carlisle Primary, and you've got the Islamic College that was Kudal High School. Back in the day, you had Kudal Junior Primary, which then then became an estate. 1970s, 1980s, Kudal was just jam-packed full of kids. Young families? Young families everywhere. It is an ageing area now, but families are coming back. Why was it? Was it because you had the young blokes working at the factory with the young kids and it was just that fringe of Perth suburbs back in those days. And then since then, obviously, those same homeowners have matured, the kids have grown up, moved out, and we're now just selling out retirees moving out eventually. Well, Dad was selling a lot of the house and land packages back in uh, the late 60s and 70s for general agency and he used to sit out in the Kudale area and they were selling house and land packages off the top of my head for about $5,000 I think was about the about the house the money. and the land house and land you can't even get um, a kitchen bench top for that these days so uh, you know that, those it was a lot of Plunkett homes back in the still a brand that's around yeah, today yeah three yep. by one seven or eight hundred square metres the same design everywhere uh, double brick and tile there was some fibros but mainly double brick and tile that's a good thing about Kudale. You've got a bit more of that. When you compare it to Cloverdale, which has a lot of fibro, at least historically. Yeah, well, Kudale doesn't really have any homes west, where Cloverdale and Redcliffe and Rivervale were, had a lot more government housing, and Kudale was mainly owner-occupier. Okay, so it makes sense that it's probably a bit more expensive for that reason, right? Yeah, well, the, I just sold one uh, the other day on a half block that went for seven eighty. So there Was that are a surprise to you? Not really, because uh, you've got the lake, you've got the schools, you're very close to the city, straight onto Orong Road, and you're in there within five or ten minutes. Look, when we're at the top of the boom, one thing that I noticed when I was scouting for development blocks for myself five years ago was that a lot of development, and we, we can talk about that uh, in the next segment coming forward, but some of these prices were coming up to a mill in Kudal, weren't they? They were going through the roof, uh, with especially with the high density. I think there was one there that went for a million and fifty. That has just sold for, I believe, 600. So the heat's been taken off yeah. the development sites. Yeah, but they're still there, right? And they're still... They're still there. People are buying. People are just starting to come back in uh, looking for development sites right now. Yeah, uh, because they can see that there is uh, a demand for that that type of housing. Now, you operate in the whole of the city of Belmont, essentially. Yep. One interesting pie graph you've shown me this morning is the mix of who you're selling to right now, what suburbs that are selling for you, and you're a great barometer because you're the number one agent in nearly all of these suburbs. You're available and marketing in all these suburbs. Therefore, it's interesting to see where most of the sales volume is hitting. So can you give us a split of how Qdale fits into your pie graph? Well, probably 25% of my sales are done in Qdale. Uh, The other 25% are done in Cloverdale. That is mainly because they are around the Belmont Forum. And that is where the demand is at the moment. Uh, everyone wants to be close to the shopping centre. And also the high density zoning is around the town centre. And the town centre is in Kudal and uh, Cloverdale. 
Do you think that that impetus is coming from the upgrades that have been invested in recently and people were seeing a bit more value in being close to that town centre than they may have done five, ten years ago? I think, yeah, I think the council rezoning the high density near the shopping centre has got a lot to do with the uh, amount of villas, units and apartments close to the shopping centre. Yep, so and naturally volume will increase in that area. Yeah, that, that's where we're doing a lot of the sales, but... Your, your family homes are always sought after, and they're between six and 800. In terms of price, 600, in, yep. yep. In terms of square meterage? Well, another one I just sold, 610, that was an older style, 4-2, 600 squares with a pool. Wasn't a big home, um, but that went for 610 at the first home open. Okay, so these houses that are original family homes, they're anywhere between 600 square meters and 800 oh normally. the the original 1970s built homes are probably a six to a thousand you got some quarter acres still right yeah f- you still got the quarter acres if you can find one r2040 you'll be a magician because most of them have been developed yeah and they're very hard to uh, get hold of at the moment yep Okay, let's talk about uh, a bit more about those price points. Given the rezoning, obviously, we've got a brand new property type that's just coming into the market, allowing those younger families or the older downsizers to stay in the area in a price point. We're talking, you know, you've got villas, you've got, you've got some apartments, obviously. Qdale, does that have much on that side of Belmont Forum, though, or is it not really zoned for it? The, the zoning's there, but the developers have backed off because uh, the prices for the resale aren't there. Yep. So the new developers coming in are probably looking at paying about fifty-five to 60000 a site, where in the boom they were selling at about 100000 a site. So there's, there's, it's just not happening? It's just, the, the, the cut's uh, it, not it's, there? It's starting to happen. Um, I'm just putting 10 townhouses together on Belmont Ave, about 100 metres to the Forum. And they will retail at about four seventy each. Three by townhouses. Two. Yeah, three by two double garage. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about those price points then. What's the cheapest property I can buy in Qdale? In Qdale, probably a rundown three by one double brick on a single resi. You're looking at about three seventy for a you know an upmarket four by two on say four fifty square meters. You're going to be five fifty six hundred. And then your larger homes can be anywhere between six and up to nine hundred. Just your normal family homes. Yeah. Oh, look, a good size one, say two fifty, three hundred squares on a good size block, you would easily get up close to the nine. Yeah, so you're paying a lot of house there. A lot of houses yeah. getting bought. Yeah. What about these villas that have been developed in the last seven or eight years? There was some new ones that have just been gone in Acton Ave, and they went around that five hundred grand mark. The older villas are probably uh, 400 to 450, where the old 1970, 80 villas are probably 300 to 350. Yes, yeah, so you can see a lot of depreciation going on. And that's what I find, especially in the bottom third of price points in Perth, depreciation generally seems to happen a bit quicker than normal on these villas and units, especially as supply increases and competition comes in with all the new units that come in the next wave. So the older ones fall away a bit quicker, don't they? The older ones are probably suited to the first home buyers and maybe someone coming out of a marriage split. The older people are buying them. People buy them as a first home, renovate them and then get a good resale on them. Okay, let's talk subdivision. We've hinted at it throughout this whole episode. So clearly this is a suburb that is a development potential suburb in general in spaces. But City of Belmont, as we know, they're quite patchy in the way that they zone their suburbs, right? It's not a blanket zoning. It's not even a dual zoning. Sometimes it's a triple zoning in some areas in the City of Belmont. There's got to be, I guess, a few 
rules that you've got in terms of risk mitigating, making sure that you know what you can actually develop in QDAO. Can you give us some some tips as to one, where people are actually making some money from feedback from your sellers and two, what seems to be the, the go right now in terms of the strategy? Well, the triple zonings, the R20, 50, 100, they are surround, directly surrounding the Belmont Forum. And if you're going to tackle one of those sites, you probably need to be looking at two, three, maybe four level apartments or going back to townhouses at R60. Uh, One site I've just put together that was 1,600 metres and we've managed to get 10 townhouses on that at R60. That's no easy feat, right? You need to be a pretty experienced developer with some serious funding behind you to get this done. The bank doesn't just go, yeah, you can have the money. No, you basically need to pay cash for the site and then go back to the bank and obviously borrow the money from there. But Pre-sales? Well, pre-sales, obviously the people I'm dealing with at the moment, they're pretty well funded. So pre-sales are always a little bit dangerous because you're going to have to set the price yep. before they're completed. And then it's very hard to change that price once they're fully complete. Yeah. You're selling an idea at a discounted price to what it will probably be worth when it's finished. Yeah. So if you sell half of them, five townhouses at 450 and then they're finished and they're good for 500, well, you know, you've technically lost 250K by doing the pre-sales. But sometimes it really is the only pathway to getting funding. Yeah, I think if you've got to go that way, you're probably best to tackle a smaller development. Exactly. Um, That's where I'm going. Yeah. Crawl before you can walk and then jog before you can run because an apartment development is a sprint. Yeah. You, 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 at the moment, there is some opportunities just for single level homes on small blocks. I've got one at the moment that you can pick up. They're 340 square meter, green title, side by side, drop the house. It's on for 460 you can probably build some little speckies for 180. A home, little green title homes like that should retail at about 499. Mm. So there should, hopefully, there should be something in it for that developer. Oh, there's, yeah, there's definitely and something. And you can tackle in it. something at that level. Yeah, it's just easy. You know, you, you don't have to get too much uh, finance involved, and you can just do it as a re- residential development. Especially through the city of Belmont, who have a lot of catching clauses in the way that they do their town planning scheme. There's some clauses in there that catch people out all the time. It's path of least resistance. You really have to de-risk what your plan is and don't just aim for the stars. Really just aim for the top of the mountain and try not to fall off. That's really getting to the end of the development is the most important thing. Look, I generally try and advise smaller developers to go for a triplex. Mm. The money is really in the third dwelling rather than go for the duplex or the quad. But they are harder to find. You've sort of got to go for a corner block or an R2040, 1,000 metres. You can build three villas on that. They've got to be townhouses though when we start going up to the higher zoning, right? Yeah, the, at the R2040, if you can get a 1,000 metres and do it at R30, you can do three single levels. Yep. It's just when you start to tackle, say, a 750 square metre block, and then you are you are going to have to maybe do one villa and two townies or a lot or, of people would townies. struggle to afford that well, their, as a first development. You're looking 900 to a million just in construction, as well as the purchase of the land. It's a big ask. So you're up to you know, nearly 1.5 before you even get started. So if you've held the site for a while, you can make it work. Do you think that QDL, given that it's obviously pulled back massively in those development sites, we're back down to, as you said, 600 grand. You could pick some of these bigger sites up for. That, that, that's an affordable space, right? Uh, again, finally, is there now, do you think, a fundamental push, demand, again, for those end products? 
Are you oh, seeing some some increase in, in demand and pricing? Chile, at the moment, there is really nothing available on the ground that's completed uh, single level. I have got one developer that's uh, putting three together at the moment and he's got the roofs on. He's going to be chasing 479 to 499, brand new 3-2, single garages, uh, green title blocks. Yep. But there's re- he's really got no, co- no, competition no competition at the moment. And that's where you want to be as a developer. Yeah, and I suppose everyone's a bit gun shy on the developments at the moment, but yeah, time the time is really now to get into Qdale and Belmont at the moment. One theme uh, before I ask you on the median house price question, one theme that we've been speaking about with a few agents has been, uh, and you included when we spoke about Cloverdale a couple of months ago, has been the really low level of stock given the big clean out through spring. Tell me about how your stock levels now compared to how they normally have been over the last 10 years. Well, I'm, I'm usually carrying between 30 and 40 uh, listings at any time. Coming up towards the end of the banking inquiry, I had 40 for sale. Uh, currently, I've got 11 for sale, and I've sold 60, 61 in the last six months. And the six months before that? Uh, something like 25. So what for me, what that demonstrates is, although you're absolutely going through the roof in terms of transactions, the replacement of those that stock coming through is really tightening up. Why do you think that is? Um, I, I would say it's... it's clearly pro- not your marketing. It's clearly not your brand recognition. No. It's something else. I think um, it's tightening up because people can see that the market is starting to lift. We're starting to get better prices. Uh, if you don't need to sell, you wouldn't sell. Uh, mainly we're selling marriage splits, mortgage stress, uh, deceased estates. Change-ups? Pe- some change-ups? Some change-up, maybe moving to the hills. I'm doing one at the moment where the people are moving to the hills. But at the moment, you can see there's a little bit of a spike in the market, so you wouldn't sell unless you really had to. One thing I think a benefit for listeners who are thinking, oh, would I sell, would I not sell right now? I've, I've held out this long is especially if you're looking to engage the best agents in your suburb, whether it's Belmont, City of Belmont, or it's you know some 40 kilometers away, the theme is the same. All of the top agents, and you can imagine what the ones underneath them who are sitting with one or two on their listings, right? All the top agents are now have probably the lowest level of stock they're probably ever going to have going forward. And the benefit you get out of that, instead of getting one out of 30 level of, in, of involvement from them, you've got one out of 11 right now from Devin Kelly in terms of you've got the most time you're probably ever going to be able to source out of the best agent in the suburb. And that's got to mean something. At the moment, the the buyer inquiry is huge. We haven't got anything really to mix up to sell. Like I've got a couple of similar homes at the moment, but I'm, I'm getting five or six people at a, an inspection. They're not even advertised inspections. They're just buy appointments and I'm just throwing more people onto those inspections and a Monday night inspection with six buyers on a brick veneer in Belmont is just huge. That is going to push the price up. We have to be a bit more optimistic with the prices because the the buyer inquiry is so huge. So you think that sellers now, the sellers you do have on your books, they're probably holding out a bit more than they would have six months ago? They're not Um, taking the first offer? Oh, look, they are considering the first offer, but there is another offer behind that first offer very quickly coming in. I've, I, I wrote an offer up this morning in Qdale. I've got another buyer looking at the same property tomorrow at 10.30. The owner is now in the box seat. He's going to have two offers to consider.
So finally, we're in a situation where at least in some suburbs, that swing from buyer's market is coming slowly towards that seller's market space again. Yeah, it's, especially it's, for good quality product. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely swung back. It's not completely evened out, but we're not. It's not so much a buyer's market now. We are controlling the the situation a bit more now, which you know was a rarity for the last twelve months. Especially, you sort of just scrambling for offers, right? We we were begging for offers. Now <laughs> now now it seems to be raining offers. Yeah. So uh, the owners can pick and choose, which is a great uh, a great position to be in. All right, median house price, what is it in QDAL? Uh, currently, three by one, eight under a square meter block, 440. That's your go. Straight away, you've preempted my next question. Three by one, so if with 440 grand, you'd go and buy a three by one, 800 square all, meter block. All day long, that's what they're worth. What are you doing with it? Just a passive hold or is it a development uh, potential? No development potential. That's just uh, maybe just spruce the gardens up, put a new kitchen, bathroom in, and live there quite happily. If you start talking development sites, you're not really going to find much under 500k. Devin, this is the first time where your pick for me, and obviously it's governed by the median house price, but your pick for me has not been a development site. It's been a, a hold. Now, you've just given me a reason why, but is that indicative of, a, I guess, a belief that for that money, that land content is still going to have probably some pretty good passive growth given that price point. It wasn't that long ago that the average price in uh, or the median price in QDAL was well over 500. Yeah. I would say it's a matter of time before it hits back to 500. Again, we're at a point now nationally where we are the lowest median house price in the country, which is ridiculous given our average salaries. But again, we face a number of headwinds in terms of just general national and state economy uh, you know, push, especially in the retail space. But Things like this at this such a low level of price point, which Belmont can offer, obviously does offer, demonstrates there is still an appetite for people to own their own home, invest in their own property developments. And not only is there an appetite, there's a capacity, at least at your price points. I think the whole reason why QDAL is at 440 is your first home buyers are sitting at 430, stamp duty free. uh, And they're, they're making up the numbers. They're probably... At, at, for that type of property, single resi, three by one, 800 squares, they're probably making up 60 to 70% of the buyer pool. So that's why it's sitting at that 430, 440. Uh, when the first home buyers was at 500K, that's where we saw QDAR sitting up at about 500. Very interesting that it really is a spike of where that first home buyer precipice sits. Yeah, uh, look, I walk into most properties, single resi, and I'm I'm thinking 430 straight up. Just that's that's just a very symbolic number. It's just an easy way to you're dealing with you know 50 to 60 percent of the market, so they are your buyer pool. Unless you've got something specifically renovated, spas, you know, new kitchens, bathrooms, you may be able to get it up to the second home buyers up around that 500 grand mark. But then again, you're only dealing with 30 percent of the market now. Does that make it hard then? Bonus question to sell you know, a new villa in the high 400s when a lot of that market is oh, a first no, home buyer? Well, then you're getting the 10K on the on the new stuff. So most... most that first, pays your stamp duty right there. Well, it's it's helping. Gets close. Uh, yeah. And most of, the, most of the buyers, if they are first home buyers, up around 500, they've got 20% deposit. So they're not that worried about the stamp duty. They want the 10K. 
They would rather the 10K than the free stamp duty because yeah. they can't buy a brand new villa in Qdale at 4.30. So there's still that demand for that product. Oh, definitely. Yep. Devin Kelly, thank you very much for another suburb. Keep going. Keep picking up the other ones uh, in the area because I absolutely love having you on. Your insight into what it means to live in your location and who wants to buy and when and what's going on at your fingertips is invaluable to everyone listening. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Trent. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!